Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. We're going to be concentrating this morning on verses 29 to 36. Luke 11, 29 to 36. We're in the middle of our study of the Gospel of Luke, and today we're looking at a passage that is somewhat intimidating on the surface. We see here a passage full of signs, of symbols and warnings, but ultimately this section is full of great comfort and encouragement to the believer. And so please stand with me for the reading of God's word this morning. Luke chapter 11, verses 29 to 36. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so will the son of man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Let's pray. Our great God and our loving Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as your people who need to be filled. Lord, we, in and of ourselves, we are empty. Lord, we ask you now, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would take this word, this word of Christ, and that you would drive it deep into our hearts. I pray that you would write it upon our hearts, that it would become who we are as your people. And dear Father, let us be changed by it this morning to be more like your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name and to his glory. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Our passage this morning begins with a situation which we would normally interpret as a very encouraging one for any ministry. What has Jesus just witnessed? He's seen an increase in the number of people coming to see him. Verse 29 tells us simply, the crowds were increasing. Now, if we stopped there, we could think that this is what every ministry is hoping for. They want to see an increase in numbers of the people who are coming. The crowds are growing, and so Jesus' influence over the people must be getting larger. At the very least, a large group of people are beginning to witness Jesus' works and hearing his teaching. So how can this be anything but a good thing? But as we've read, Jesus does not see this as a good thing at all. In fact, he sees the situation as so problematic that he pronounces one of his most severe condemnations on the crowd who is gathered to him there. Now it's clear, 
Jesus doesn't point to the number of people as the problem, as though the amount of people was the issue that Jesus had with them. Rather, Jesus points to the reason that all these people have come to see him. And it's this that draws his condemnation. Look at verse 29. When the crowds were increasing, he began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus sees the crowds grow, but when he describes this generation, he calls them evil, very simply, evil. And the one thing that he singles out about them is that they were seeking a sign. Now, we've already actually been introduced to this group of people last week when Pastor Calvin led us through the previous passage. In those verses, in that section, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 11, remember the situation. Jesus had just cast out a demon from a mute man, and to the amazement of the people, the man began speaking again. This is a miraculous sign. But two groups are mentioned in this section who react to that event. Look up at verse 15 and 16 of chapter 11 with me. After Jesus casts out this demon from the man, verse 15, but some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, while others to test him kept seeking from him a sign from heaven. As we saw last week, some claim that Jesus cast out demons because he was in league with the devil, as it were. Pastor Calvin led us through Jesus' response to that last week. But others were there, as it says in verse 16, to test him, seeking from him a sign from heaven. This is the group that Jesus responds to in our passage this morning. So, when Jesus sees the crowds increase, rather than being excited, rather than being encouraged that more people are coming to witness his ministry, he's frustrated. In Mark chapter 9, we see a similar situation where the Pharisees are coming and they ask him for a sign, and it describes Jesus' reaction as this. It says that, and he sighed deeply in his spirit. So Jesus is frustrated with them here. Why? Because he knows exactly why they're there. They want to see some extraordinary sign in order to test him. That's why they're there. When he responds to this, to the crowds coming, he declares that this generation is an evil one. Jesus then explains that while they're looking for a sign, that's why they're there, they're not going to receive anyone except, except one. The last part of verse 29, Jesus says, no sign will be given to it, to this generation, except the sign of Jonah. Now, this statement here, interestingly enough, takes the form of a judgment. The implication is that because they are coming to Jesus just to see some extraordinary sign, they will only receive one, the sign of Jonah. This judgment sets up our entire passage this morning. And as we look at this passage, we see four main themes rise to the surface. First, the first thing that we're gonna see is the problem of seeking a sign. The problem of seeking a sign. We're gonna see why this is such a bad thing. Second, we're gonna see the sign of Jonah. Third, 
we see the superiority of the Messiah. And finally, fourth, we see the light of Jesus. The light of Jesus. The first thing we see is the problem of seeking a sign. Now, as we see this, though, a question is confronting us. It confronts the crowds first, and it confronts us as well. A very simple question. Why are we seeking Jesus? This question is answered for the crowds by Jesus himself. This generation, that group of crowds that Jesus was speaking to, were seeking him to witness him perform some spectacular sign from heaven. As we talked about why, why do they want to see this? There are a couple of reasons that we see people seeking Jesus just to see his extraordinary signs. We see throughout the New Testament a number of them. We just saw in verse 16, some wanted to test him. They wanted to see signs to test him. This is a recurring theme in the New Testament. Many passages express this desire. One example is John chapter 2, verse 18. In this instance, the Jews say to Jesus simply, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now, in all of the passages like this, the Jewish authorities, they're essentially saying this, we will not believe you or follow you unless you prove yourself with signs. But notice the problem, especially for our passage here with testing Jesus. Think about the context. What has Jesus just done? From the beginning of his ministry, he has been casting out demons and healing every kind of disease and even raising the dead. He's done this from the beginning. In other words, Jesus has already passed any kind of test that could have been given to him in this way. In short, he's already authenticated his ministry by extraordinary signs, signs that only God could perform. And this proved that in Jesus Christ, the kingdom of God had come. He's already done this. And what are they doing here? They're looking for more. They still want to see a sign in order to test him. The miracles he had performed were apparently not enough for these crowds. And also, how did, they, how did many of them respond to the miracles up to this point? We already saw. Last week, they said, he must be in league with the prince of demons if he's able to cast out demons. So they demand a sign, and when he shows them a sign, oh, it must be the demons that he's using. So what's going on here? Why are all the signs that Jesus has already done not enough for the people? Why are they still looking to test him? Very simply, I think they're looking for a way out. They know, like all of us know, we have to deal with this Jesus Christ. We have to deal with him. And so they come, they come to see him. The crowds are increasing. But think about it. If they're able to set up some test for Jesus and then conclude that he doesn't pass it, his signs maybe aren't spectacular enough for them or they're not to their taste, then they no longer feel bound to follow him and to submit to his requirements for their lives. At best, this is a delaying tactic. Those coming to test Jesus may be thinking, 
All I need is one more sign. They may be thinking that genuinely, and then I'll commit to following him. If he doesn't show me what I want to see, then I don't have to worry about him anymore. And so Jesus condemns those who come to him looking for a sign to test him. And in doing this, he condemns all of us who set up any condition to following him with our whole hearts. We would rarely admit it, but how often do we set up our own demands and expectations for Jesus to meet before we submit to him, before we follow him with our whole heart? In our hearts, we think, I'll follow Christ, and yet only as long as my life is going well, or as long as he doesn't require me to give up this thing that is really most important to me. We often look for these kinds of excuses not to obey him. But the reality, as we know, is that he is the one with the authority. He says in Matthew 16, 24, famously, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus has already proven himself to be the Lord, and we must follow him or be condemned with the generation of Jesus's day. Now, that's the first group of people. They wish to test Jesus. That's why they wanna see an extraordinary sign. But in addition to this, we see at least two other reasons that people came to Jesus just to see the extraordinary signs in, his, in the Gospels. First, they wanted to be entertained. They wanted to be amused. We see this, for instance, when Herod uh, questions Jesus. When Jesus is brought to Herod uh, during his trial, Herod just wanted to see Jesus perform some miracle for his own amusement. Second, the people wanted to be around when Jesus performed miracles because they wanted free food, like the crowds did after feeding the 5,000, okay? They wanted their material well-being taken care of in this way. But the point of all of this, as we know, is that everyone who seeks Jesus simply for those signs, simply for those kind of things, is doing it for the wrong reasons. They're seeking Christ for the wrong reasons. And so in verse 29, Jesus condemns this generation as an evil one for seeking the sign. But now jump down to verse 31. Jesus still has in mind here this generation. His denouncement of them fasts forward to the end of time, to the final judgment in this verse. Read verse 31. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with the men of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, you remember the story. We get it in 1 Kings 10. I'm gonna read briefly that section here. Chapter 10, verse one. Now, when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from the king that he could not explain to her. Verse six, and she said to the king, report, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. 
but I did not de- but I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it and behold the half was not told me your wisdom and prosperity surpasses the report that I heard so the queen of sheba as our passage says here came from the ends of the earth seeking out solomon because why she was looking for wisdom and when she saw solomon she acknowledged his supreme wisdom and acknowledged that it was a great gift from god himself now jesus is setting up the contrast here the queen of the south and the generation of jesus's day the queen sought solomon for the right reason and she acknowledged god's wisdom in solomon when she saw it but the crowds of jesus's day why did they seek jesus for the very wrong reasons and they failed to acknowledge him as the wisdom of god incarnate and so jesus explains that at the end when god judges all people the extent of this generation this evil generation's guilt will be exposed by the fact that the queen of sheba sought out god's wisdom in solomon while this generation here didn't seek jesus for anything better than to see an extraordinary sign all of this again directs our attention back to ourselves and it begs our question why are we seeking jesus we could ask the question why are we here in church on the lord's day now there are many reasons we could be we could be like herod we're looking for entertainment we just want a good time we could be looking for material benefits of being part of the community like those who were fed uh, with the 5000 but why should we why should we be seeking jesus because jesus is the one greater than solomon he is himself the wisdom of god because as peter confesses in john 6:68 6, lord to whom shall we go you have the words of eternal life we seek jesus because he shows us the father and is himself the way the truth and the life when we hear the scriptures whether from the pulpit or in our personal bible reading we're hearing the words of christ the words of eternal life we should do whatever it takes to seek these out and have life by them we should be hanging on every word that proceeds from the mouth of god it's through them that christ saves his people gives them life reigns over them by the powerful working of the holy spirit that is why we should seek jesus not simply to see some extraordinary sign now the next thing we see in the passage is the sign of jonah the sign of jonah the judgment that jesus gives to this evil generation is that they will receive only one sign this sign of jonah now it's a little clearer what this sign really is over in matthew chapter 12 so if you flip over there briefly matthew 12 verses 39 to 41 here we see once again the pharisees come to jesus demanding a sign and jesus responds to them in matthew chapter 12 beginning in verse 39 says but he answered them an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet jonah 
For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This is familiar to us, I think. Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, and then, as it were, rose out of the fish, alive by the powerful working of God. God preserved him, brought him back. Jesus says that he himself, the Son of Man, will follow the same pattern. But instead of being in the belly of a great fish, he will be buried in the earth for three days and three nights. But like Jonah, he will rise again out of the earth by the powerful working of God. And so the sign of Jonah, which this generation is going to see, is the sign of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice a few other connections here that help us kind of round out this comparison, the parallel. Think about it. When Jonah rose from the belly of the fish, what did he then do? He rose to begin proclaiming to the people of Nineveh the coming judgment of God against their wickedness. Remember, he was essentially fire and brimstone preacher here. That was the mission that he was sent uh, and he tried to avoid at the beginning. Now, with his preaching of divine judgment came a call to repentance. And amazingly, not to Jonah's surprise, but amazingly, the Ninevites actually heeded it. They repented before God and therefore averted, avoided the judgment of God against them. And so Jonah's resurrection from the belly of the fish, it's tied closely to this proclamation of judgment coming and the need for repentance. When we look at Jesus' own resurrection, we see important parallels. The resurrection of Jesus is the first, but not the last of its kind. Following it will be the resurrection of all of his people from the dead at the final judgment. The Apostle Paul refers to this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. And so Jesus' resurrection in this way begins a new age which comes to its conclusion in the final day of judgment. Jesus' resurrection opens up the end time judgment and salvation. And so let's put these pieces together and then we'll draw some application. Like Jonah, whose rising from the fish was assigned to the people of Nineveh that a time of judgment was at hand, and therefore repentance was necessary. Jesus' rising from the grave is a sign to the people that the of that generation that a new age of judgment is at hand, and therefore repentance is called for in an even more urgent way. Resurrection, divine judgment, and a call to repentance are all wrapped up in this sign of Jonah. But Jesus, again, draws a contrast between the men of Nineveh and those of this evil generation. He fast forward once again. When he talks about the queen of the south who is to rise up, he also talks about the men of Nineveh at the same judgment. Look at verse 32. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus is prophesying again. He says that this generation will not repent at Jesus' resurrection, at the sign of Jonah. The warnings 
about the day of judgment will go unheeded by this evil generation. As a result, in the final judgment, the repentance of the men of Nineveh will show the extent of the failure of Jesus' generation who saw something greater than Jonah but didn't repent at the time. So we see the issue here is this generation's response to Jesus and his resurrection. They fail to obey and turn to the Lord in repentance as a result of this resurrection. Now, once again, this turns us inward to ask the question, how have we, how do we respond to Jesus and his resurrection? Are we listening to him in a way that this generation was not? Are we living in light of the reality of his resurrection? With the coming of Christ, Jesus inaugurated a new age where the call to repentance is even more urgent than Jonah's call to repentance to the wicked city of Nineveh. To fail to live in light of this would be to act as though Jesus didn't change anything. To live as though God's kingdom had not come in him. It would be to live business as usual according to our own sinful inclinations rather than in submission to Jesus Christ. But to live in light of this resurrection would be to repent, to turn away from our sins, to put our hope in Jesus Christ and in him alone and await his return with joyful submission to his lordship. It would be in short to live as his disciples. And Jesus' statements here serve as an invitation for us to follow him, as well as a warning against failing in the way that this generation did. Now, the third thing that we see that comes from our passage here is the superiority of the Messiah. The center of gravity of all of this explanation that Jesus has given to us lies in what he says about himself in comparison to these Old Testament figures. In verses 31 and 32, Jesus mentions, as we saw King Solomon, the prophet Jonah, he then makes it clear that these figures, as great as they were as kings, preachers, and prophets, they pale in comparison to him. The final part of verse 31 says, behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The final part of verse 32 says, behold, Something greater than Jonah is here. Solomon, we know, was the wisest man in the Old Testament. In fact, throughout Scripture, his name was synonymous with wisdom itself. But Paul in Colossians 2 tells us that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In 1 Corinthians 1.24, Paul also speaks of Christ as the power of God and the wisdom of God. Solomon as great as he was, he simply pointed to the one who from all eternity was the word and wisdom of God himself, and who is now the full and final revelation of God's truth to us. Something greater than Solomon has come in Jesus. And turning to Jonah, he was a great prophet. He experienced a miraculous deliverance from death in the fish he enacted God's judgment and called a great city to repentance. But Jesus was delivered from death itself by God. He was raised on the third day and himself is the judge of the world. Something greater than Jonah has come in Jesus. 
In our passage, this greater nature of Jesus serves to heighten the responsibility that his original hearers had to believe in him, repent, and follow him. And it does the same for us. We are called, therefore, to acknowledge him, to worship him for who he is, or we will be in the same lot as this evil generation. We will see the same condemnation as they will. So this is all warnings. And now we come to the final section in our passage, verses 32 to 36. Here we see the light of Jesus. Look at verses 33 to 36. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Now, this section seems somewhat cryptic, but its primary purpose is to reinforce the points that Jesus has just made. Jesus here uses a familiar analogy, the light and the lamp. He points out the fact that nobody would light a lamp and then put it under something. The point of a lamp is to give light. And so it's only appropriate when it's put on its stand so that that light will reach more people. Jesus has been talking about signs and preaching that reveal a message to the people. Here, the light of the lamp in this first verse is the message of Jesus. No one after lighting a lamp puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. The point is that the gospel, the message of Jesus and his resurrection is a public message. It's something that must be proclaimed to all indiscriminately. And of course, this is borne out in Jesus's great commission to his people. He calls his people to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And in doing this, the light of Christ is spread across the world. In verse 34, there's a shift, though, in the reference here. The stage is flipped. It's no longer about the message of Christ going out. That's not the light. But it's about the message coming in, how a person receives it. Verse 34, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when your eye is bad, <laughs> lost my place. Your body is full of darkness. The eye is now considered the lamp. The question is whether your eye is healthy or is if it's bad. So the relative health of the eye affects the entire body. The point is that the eye is where we perceive the world, where we receive messages, right? A healthy eye in this context is one that receives spiritual things correctly, whereas a bad eye doesn't. The context, as we know, is this evil generation not receiving Jesus and his message. Now, we saw that final judgment awaited this generation for not receiving Jesus. Here, we see the consequences for this life 
when we fail to receive spiritual things correctly. The second part of verse 34, Jesus says, when your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light, but when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. And we also see a warning that comes in verse 35, therefore be careful lest the light in you be darkness. This is a very severe warning. If we don't receive Christ, we remain in spiritual darkness and blindness with no hope, with no means of changing our hearts or reforming our lives. <clears throat> this is a bleak state and a serious warning. But our passage ends with hope, an unfathomable hope, in fact. If our eye is healthy and we receive the message of Christ, verse 34 promise us, promises us that our whole body will be full of light. Verse 36 continues this point. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Jesus himself, as we know, is the light of the world. As John says in the prologue to his gospel, in him was life and the light was the light of men. The focus of this point is that the light of Christ reshapes not just one aspect of our lives, but every single aspect of our lives. The whole body, he says, is full of light. Darkness in our hearts is removed as the light of Christ shines on them. Now, it's not as though we were completely sanctified, but to paraphrase the Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper, there's not one square inch of our lives that Christ does not say, that's mine. Christ changes even the hidden aspects of our lives, and that's the point of this. And what a hope that brings to us. The gospel of Jesus with the resurrection of Christ has the power to change us completely, bringing light to our entire being. Now, do we ever feel like there's that one part or a whole section of our lives that is beyond the power of God to change here? It'll never be changed, never restored, never healed. Here we have a promise that that's simply not true, that our lives may be wholly bright as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. And now this should drive us all again to seek Jesus Christ, to listen to him and to live in light of his coming and his resurrection. So in the end, once again, it's Christ and his power that we must trust in. So let's receive him as the risen Christ that he is. Let's pray. Our dear Father, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you that you are Lord Jesus the light of the world, and that every aspect of our lives is completely changed by that. Dear Father, we ask that we would submit to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that uh, by your Holy Spirit, you would enlighten our eyes, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and therefore that we would submit to the gospel of Jesus Christ and worship him and adore him, submitting to him with great joy. We pray this all to his glory in Jesus' name. Amen.